the patient doesn't present with an answer on their forehead like I have a refluxing perforator under this venous stasis ulcer plus GSV disease. Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Kunal Karani, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Cincinnati. I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker, MD, School of Medicine. And I'm Eric Winterholler, a third-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker, MD, School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Kunal and Eric will discuss venous disease with Dr. Aaron Shiloh. Eric, what is it that you enjoyed most about this interview? That's a good question. Uh, We covered a few different topics, and along with venous disease, Dr. Shiloh also talked about building a private practice. And some of the things he talked about were attracting patients, talking to physicians in the area about referrals. And as well, he talked about improving the clinical practice of IR, just about being a good doctor and caring for your patients. Kunal, as Dr. Shiloh was bringing up these important topics of how to be a good clinician as an interventional radiologist, were there any important one-liners that our listeners should watch out for? Definitely, Ben. Towards the end of the episode, uh, Dr. Shiloh was really talking to us about how uh, the number one way to succeed in IR is to first and foremost deliver great patient care. And uh, he really stressed the importance of that, uh, meeting the patient's need and making sure that you're doing everything possible um, to deliver the best patient care. And uh, I thought that was really interesting to hear, uh, just to hear his uh, perspective being in the private practice world. I've mostly talked to interventional radiologists in the academic setting and getting his perspective was very valuable That's interesting. I think often, like you said, most medical students or trainees in general are surrounded by academic interventional radiology. I think that private practice perspective that we are trying to show our listeners this season is such a valuable one. And it's great that you guys were able to get um, such a great clinical perspective from Dr. Shiloh. Another interesting thing that Dr. Shiloh discussed was Um, how patients are able to get to him and how they're able to know about the wonderful treatments that he provides. Uh, He actually was talking about how he's uh, less and less relying on um, other physicians um, to to refer patients to him. And actually, he's been using means such as Twitter, which I know you, I, and Eric have been using a lot recently, but he's using stuff like Twitter, social media, Instagram, to get his message directly across to the patient so patients can come to him directly. And I thought that was super interesting and it really shows the impact uh, that social media is making on healthcare. Wow, that's awesome. He stressed to us the importance of of word of mouth things and using social media to, to talk about not only his practice and things to help his business grow, but also to spread the word about the procedures that interventional radiology offers. We talk about turf wars a lot and talk about the the, diff, the challenges of, of growing the, one of the newest specialties in medicine. And he, Dr. Shiloh is a big supporter of using social media and using these different ways to get the word out. Interesting. I've seen him be an active proponent of uh, the treatment of superficial venous disease and varicose veins on Twitter. So 
I'm excited, along with all of our listeners, to be able to, to listen to this interview and, and learn more from Dr. Shiloh. And now, the interview with Dr. Shiloh. Dr. Shiloh, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Before we talk about venous diseases, can you please tell us how you discovered the field of interventional radiology? Sure. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Um, it's actually probably, at least back in the day, was one of the more common methods that people entered interventional radiology. And that was a bit through the back door, which is that I started out my career in general surgery. So <clears throat> when I was in medical school, I really loved general surgery, of course. I tried to find some other surgical fields that I thought might be interesting. And in fact, kind of almost went into urology for a little bit. Uh, and and then basically, uh, after a bit of time, uh, I started my surgery residency. Uh, but during my internship, uh, I found myself down in interventional radiology a lot, uh, going over things, you know, besides abscess drainages and GI bleeds and things like that. I was there a lot. And I was also started to get a little bit, uh, what's the right word, uh, you know, fatigued from surgery. It was, um, you know, very challenging to get a balance of life and, and work. And uh, as much as I loved operating, I just didn't see, uh, at least where I was, uh, that the future was going to be so great. Everybody seemed so unhappy. And IR was this burgeoning new field and had a lot of cool things about it and technology and devices. And basically, at that point, I said, you know what, maybe uh, my skill set and my abilities are better suited towards interventional radiology. And I, you know, after a year of general surgery, I decided to move across into radiology and then subsequently IR. Okay, so maybe a little more of an unconventional path into IR there. Yeah, there have been a lot of people, though. You know, nowadays, obviously, with the IR residency, it's pretty much kind of what I created on my own, which is a bit of surgery, a bit of radiology, and then a bit of IR. Uh, and, and back then, there were a lot of, you know, surgical-type I hate to call it dropouts, but surgical people who, who just got, I guess, a little tired of the lifestyle involved in surgery and, and thought that there'd be something different and a little bit more uh, cutting edge and newer. And uh, there were a lot of us. Um, I'm sure if you look at, you know, I guess my generation now of interventionists, there's a whole lot of people who uh, began their lives in surgery and transitioned into IR. I've got it. Okay. And yeah, you work in a private practice setting, which is kind of different from the other IR physicians who have come on the show. But can you give us just a brief overview of how you were able to structure your current practice? Sure. Um, I've actually worked in various types of uh, environments, and there are a lot of different practice models that exist across the United States and in the world. Um, when I finished my fellowship in 2000, 2003, I was looking to try to you know make my own way. I think one of the things that I found to be potentially discouraging about academic IR, particularly in some of the bigger programs, was that, you know, there was always somebody who was already the UFE guy or, or the uh, liver embolization person or the so on and so forth. And there was really, you know, the newer people that weren't given as much access to that. And, and I was fortunate that in the Philadelphia area, I ended up joining the largest practice, pri private practice group. Hmm. And at the time, their um, IO or their interventional oncology practice was really, really limited. And I saw an opportunity to, to become the interventional oncology person. And, and that was something that appealed to me was the ability to grow a bit of the practice and change the way things were done, at least locally in the community. And then <clears throat> I stayed in that large group for 15 years. In fact, we were the largest private practice group, one of the largest in the United States and on the Northeast United States. Uh, 
but then about four or five years ago, um, after our group sold our practice to uh, Virtual Radiologic, which basically for most people know is Nighthawk, um, I started my own vein practice, which I was working at one day a week. And then finally, this past January, I have actually moved from uh, having my own vein practice, working in the hospital and private practice group, to um, bringing all those skills to the uh, ambulatory surgical world or the OBL world. And so I do everything now uh, in uh, three ASCs spread out around the Philadelphia area. Wow. Okay. That's a really cool journey through IR. Yep. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, it sounds like then perhaps you selected the private practice route because it offered kind of a more variable practice experience in terms of what you saw, what you treated, the types of procedures you did um, versus the academic route. Or is that fair to say? Or um, are there other reasons? I think there were other reasons. I mean, I mean, there are other things that go on. For example, you know, financially, at least. Back then, there was a significant disparity between the ability to earn as a private practice uh, partner versus an academic uh, IR. And at least this was historical. I mean, you know, and things have changed significantly since then. But, you know, back then it was basically if you worked, in my case, two or three years towards partnership, when you became a partner, you got, uh, you know, some things that were a bit uh, more lucrative time off, like extra time off. So, you know, many days off a year, you know, uh, lots of weeks and days off during the week. I was starting a new family and I wanted to have an opportunity to spend time with them. Um, and then certainly there was a, a larger uh, potential compensation package when you became a partner versus academic medicine. I'm pretty sure that the differences now are not as significant. So there was that. And there was also the opportunity that I felt like it wouldn't take long for me to become potentially a big fish, maybe in a little pond, but at least give myself the chance to become, uh, you know, the interventional oncology person and the UFE person and, and a bunch of different things that I may have had to wait in line or wait behind others in a larger academic practice. So for those reasons, I selected uh, private practice and it was, it was good to me. I have no complaints about it. It was, it was really um, a fantastic experience. And I, I, you know, I was the section chief of IR for many years and covered 12 different hospitals and all those different staffs and different inventories. And, you know, I learned a lot about that. So uh, I just things, you know, things have changed. And now I have decided to kind of do the same type of cases in the outpatient world. And again, that lets you have more control over your own patients, as well as potentially get a better level of remuneration if you uh, work things out properly. It may be more risky, but the reward is greater. Okay, I see. Um, What are the main conditions then uh, that you treat primarily in your practice? Well, in our practice at at, uh, Pennsylvania Vassar Institute, uh, the number one thing we treat is actually peripheral arterial disease. We probably do over a thousand uh, PAD, 80 grams a year spread out amongst our three places. So PAD is Number one, first and foremost, which is, again, a little little bit different than most IR practices. And, you know, all uh, credit really goes to those who have built this practice before me, which is uh, primarily um, Dr. McGuckin and and, uh, Dr. Watts. Uh, Dr. Monchak's also with us now. But, you know, between McGuckin's years working there and then Watts for the last couple of years, um, you know, they've really built a very robust PAD practice. Um, But aside from that, obviously, I do also... 
using the skills that I learned having my own vein practice, I do a full array of all vein disease, which goes from the most basic type things like superficial cosmetic sclerotherapy to, um, you know, of course, ablations of every vein, uh, superficial vein, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I bring all new technologies there like Venusil, which is vein blue, uh, Varathena, which is foam. And then, of course, I also do treat deep vein disease because there is a tremendous overlap between superficial vein disease and, and deep vein disease. So we certainly deal with May Therner uh, and other iliac compression syndromes and chronic IBC occlusions and things like that. So uh, vein disease as well. And then now I've, uh, I do fibroid embolizations. Uh, we do a, a fair number of them. I, in fact, I have one tomorrow morning. Uh, I started recently doing prostate artery embolizations. Um, and uh, there aren't a lot of people doing them in the uh, beginning that practice as well. And hopefully uh, sometime soon we'll be bringing uh, Y90 uh, radio embolization to the OBL as well. So uh, all those things take a little bit of time to build up and uh, get the patients, of course, and then get the proper structure set up, get the proper licensure from the state. So uh, like to summarize, probably primarily PAD and now vein disease, UFE, uh, PAE, and uh, and hopefully soon we'll be doing Y90 uh, radio embolizations. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like you have a, a pretty good breadth of conditions that you treat in your practice. That's great. I should also mention, I guess, I you know, I as an aside, I also do do some aesthetic procedures like Botox, fillers, uh, Juvederm, that is, uh, and that comes also from my vein practice. But it's not a it's not a primary aspect of my care. But I think that in the interventional radiology world, there's probably not a whole lot of us doing. Um, aesthetic medicine also, but it's also something that uh, I enjoy doing. It's not an enormous part of my practice anymore, but I certainly enjoy doing them when I, when I have a chance. Okay. Gotcha. Do, uh, are you affiliated with any nearby hospital and do your patients, for example, require a hospital stay sometimes? Uh, well, we are affiliated. I'm still on staff at um, Aria Hospital, which is now part of Jefferson, Philadelphia. Uh, I do take call for them. <clears throat> Our patients do not typically require any overnight admissions. Uh, many of the local insurers, or some of the local insurers, I should say, do require you to have admitting privileges at a hospital. And so that can be challenging for some who work primarily in the, off, in the OBL world or the ASC world. But because of my you know, previous relationships with the hospital and my previous group, uh, I was, uh, you know, we jointly decided that I would stay on staff and then help them out with taking some overnight call. And you know, potentially even bring some cases eventually that are not feasible to be done in the AST to the hospital. And so that may still occur. But so, uh, yeah, I'm affiliated still with Aria Hospital. Um, and uh, a couple other ones are a little bit more remote for other call purposes. But uh, we do stay, uh, hope, uh, me, myself and Watts are, are still affiliated with the hospital. Uh, and again, it's primarily for insurance reasons, but we also do take call. And we'll see how long, much longer that we're going to be doing that. Okay, gotcha. I know you just a little bit about the business aspect of building an IR practice, but what were some of the, what were some of the biggest hurdles that you encountered when creating your own office-based lab? First, I guess we have to differentiate the different things that I actually personally created. Uh, I, I opened up my own vein office and in that office, we really did only superficial vein disease and things that did not require fluoroscopy. Currently now I work in this ASC and we have obviously, um, you know, fairly, robust fluoroscopic program because we're using, we're doing PAD and UFE. So I can't speak to establishing the OBL. I know a fair amount about what it's required. Um, the hurdles really are just, 
you know, first of all, there's the whole idea of people wondering, you know, who are you? What are you doing this for? And, and the actual other hurdle is that even though I had a fairly uh, longstanding and I thought good reputation in the Philadelphia area, just because you open up your own office and hang your own shingle doesn't necessarily mean that patients are going to flood in the door. So I would tell you that I think the biggest hurdle and something to overcome is not necessarily financial or technical or anything. It really comes down to when you strike out on your own, how are you going to get the patients? It turns out that many times the easiest part of all of it is doing the procedures. Getting the patients, which is something that is rarely discussed in many forums, is the most difficult part of being out on your own is where are these people going to come from? And how can you make sure that it's, there's a steady stream of those patients? So even if you have a good relationship with one doctor and he or she sends you every vein patient they have, it's still, it's probably not going to be enough. So now you need two, three, four, five, ten 10 referring doctors. And it takes a lot of work to cultivate those people, even those people that you've previously worked with. There's a lot of political affiliations people have. They may still feel the need or desire to send to the hospital where, where you've known them and they may even be owned by the hospital. So then you have to go direct to consumer, which is one of the things that I, I guess I pride myself on is the ability to, uh, that, that we made sort of a side shuffle and not necessarily abandoned the relationships with physicians, but said, you know, if we're going to invest time and money into obtaining patients, we're going to go direct to consumer rather than taking that same time and money and taking doctors out to dinner and all those other things that in the past you've been told to do in terms of uh, developing relationships with referring physicians. Um, so it's not to say that that doesn't work and I don't do it. It's just the biggest hurdle I think that I discovered was making sure that there are patients who come in and out of the office because you need them to uh, you know feed the office. And that's the hardest thing uh, is being out on your own is just figuring out what works best, particularly in your area, in terms of getting patients in the door? Got it. Okay. I, I definitely agree with you that that's not something that a lot of people talk about very often in the forums that I've read and things. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Would you say right now that um, a greater percentage of your patients still come from referrals from other physicians or direct uh, to consumer? For me personally, it's mainly, I mean, I think that I get, if I had to break it down, it's probably 50-50. But as time goes on, it gets more direct-to-consumer and, and less referral-based. And, you know, direct-to-consumer also leads to uh, patient referrals as well. So if a woman finds our office on Google and decides to come and be seen by me or the other people uh, for vein disease, and she has a good experience, then she's going to refer her friends. And so that's patient referral and that still is different than, you know, phys direct physician referral. I think that my vein referral is very limited in terms of a physician vein referrals because superficial vein disease, unfortunately, is not well taught. It's not taught in medical school, really. It's not taught in many residencies. It's not taught in medical residencies. It's not taught in interventional residencies. It's just, it is really a, uh, unfortunately, it's just sort of this orphan disease that very few people seem to care about. Um, even my, our own society, the Society of Interventional Radiology, has a meeting coming up that is supposed to be all about veins, right? Active, I think it's called. And yet, somehow, there's not a single talk on superficial vein disease. You'll hear, you could hear three talks on whether a laser or forceps are better to extract uh, embedded IVC filter, which is interesting and all. However, 
the vast majority of vein disease in the United States relates to superficial vein disease and not about complex filter extractions. And, you know, this may be my personal bias, but, you know, when we, when we jump up and down and cry that other specialties are taking away our procedures, uh, we, it's for reasons like this, where we're somehow abandoning the obvious, the, the large uh, elephant in the room, which is superficial vein disease and focusing instead on the, what's much sexier is using, you know, complex tools to do a complex filter extraction that many of us, particularly in the community, will never end up doing. So again, uh, I think that, uh, you know, it, it just, that disease is an orphan disease and a lot of doctors don't really think about it and patients don't get treated. So it's a very, very good disease type to go direct to consumer. Fibroid embolization is another one, I would say 50-50. PAD right now, I would say is still primarily referral-based. Uh, you know, many patients aren't out there searching for PAD. We do get some, but we're still primarily referral-based. And PAE right now is all internet-based. So, you know, it depends on the disease state and, and how you're dealing with it. So it doesn't, there's no one clear cut answer. I would tell you though, that there are a lot of my patients are coming uh, from the internet, from searching from us, from finding our webpage and from liking what they see. And then subsequently, you know, making the next step and contacting us and, and uh, starting on the road towards getting better. I see. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, actually with that, uh, we'd love to start talking about superficial venous disease. If that's all right with you. Sure. Um, my understanding, like you kind of mentioned, um, we, as medical students don't learn that much about venous disease in general, whether it's you know deep or superficial venous disease. Um, and my understanding is that venous disease in general is a very morbid but under-researched area of medicine. You know, we uh, learn a lot about uh, the diseases that can happen in the coronaries or stroke, but in the veins, not that much. Um, and I think that it's an under it's an under-researched area of medicine as well. Um, so when a patient comes to you in the clinic, uh, with superficial venous disease, um, how do they kind of classically present to you for medical care? Right. Well, it's a very good question. You know, typical patient, uh, in a vein disease is going to be a 45 to 50 year old woman who's had three children. And now over time has noticed that the spider veins that she used to have on her legs have turned into bigger, ropier varicose veins and their legs actually hurt. They hurt at the end of the day, they're fatigued, they can have itching and burning and cramps in their calves. They can have a whole slew of symptoms and they are usually just, you know, either they attribute their problems to old age or I'm getting older, I'm not in the same shape I was, various things. And because their doctors don't really understand the pathophysiology of the disease, they get a lot of times, even when presented their own disease to their own primary doctors, they get told, well, it's a cosmetic problem and that's the end of it. That is not in fact true. Chronic venous insufficiency is a real medical condition. It has a real, real ICD code. So it has um, a diagnosis codes and it has treatment codes for the various procedures that we can do. And, you know, so people who have just spider veins are considered CEAP classification one. So there's a grading system and we'll talk about the C. Spider veins are one, varicose veins are two. Varicose veins and swelling is three, so that's not uncommon. Then four is uh, hyperpigmentation. So when you get a discoloration, a browning color on your legs, um, and you may see people now that you hear about this, you'll be wandering around like, oh man, look at the brown legs on that person. That is hyperpigmentation from chronic venous insufficiency. It's from the red blood cells basically staining the skin, the iron in the red blood cells, having been in the skin and the soft tissues for so long, 
they start to stain the skin and that's hyperpigmentation. That's stage four. And then uh, five and six are really ones that we prefer not to deal with if we don't have to, or at least prevent patients from getting to. And six is to have an active venous stasis ulcer. So you can actually develop an ulceration in your, in your ankle, your calf related to vein disease. Uh, and five is if it heals. So it kind of goes backwards. Um, I, take, I take care of uh, patients with five and six disease all the time. It's very complicated. And of course, it's a shame when they get to that point. Uh, but that, that does follow a natural progression of disease. Um, but the most typical patient would be, you know, like I said, a woman in her 40s or 50s who's had multiple kids and now has varicose veins and has symptoms related to it. Of course, we see people, uh, men and women of uh, younger and older age, uh, but that would be the most typical patient. And what I would suggest, and then one of the things that I do differently, I suppose, in my own practice, is that I tend to like to scan, do my own ultrasound. So you'll learn um, in radiology is that ultrasound is a very user-dependent test. You are holding the probe or a technologist is holding the probe in his or her hand, and they are creating the images with that probe and the machine. Whereas in CT or MRI or X-ray, while the technologist does have some say in how the images are acquired and, and appear, the reality is, is that the machine does the bulk of the work. So you'll see CAT scans uh, from various institutions, and they look very, very similar nowadays because they're all done on a 16 or 64 slice scanner, and they all have fairly similar protocols, and they push a couple buttons, and the machine generates the images. That's not the same as with ultrasound. And so um, the, one of the nice things to do is that when you scan your own patients, when you have the probe in your hand and you're scanning a patient, you can sh clearly show them where their veins are and what is actually causing them because it's really confusing to people that they think that a lot of the time they think the problem comes from the foot up when in fact it comes from the groin down, it's leaking blood down the leg and you can sh clearly show it to them just by using an ultrasound. And again, I think because people are much more image driven today, we all have phones where everyone's on Instagram and all types of other various um, modalities that they're looking at pictures and pictures and pictures that it's feasible to show somebody an image on a screen and, and, and have them understand what it means a lot easier than it once was. So um, I find it very uh, important uh, to convince patients to have them understand what's wrong with their leg and then to the ability then to discuss what we're going to do based on their now slightly improved understanding of their disease. And if you're able to achieve that, particularly in this disease state, then the patient will buy in to being able to be treated in your office with no sedation, all local anesthesia. And, you know, these things sound concerning and, uh, and you have to be able to convince them that, you know, not only are you competent in doing it, uh, but that it's the right thing to do. And, and that's one of the values of, of having, seeing a patient, doing your own ultrasound, spending time with them, and then from there you can set up a treatment plan and decide how to go forward. I really like that bit about patient education and ultrasound. I think that's really true to help not only help the patient understand kind of what's going on and what the, where the problem is, but also, like you said, attract them to your practice. Yeah. I mean, you, you listen, uh, people, again, this is one of the things that no one ever really likes to talk about in medicine. It's that, you know, you have to sell yourself to the person and especially today where patients have a choice you know, again, my patients are coming because they chose to come to me because of the internet and because of the digital billboard that I have. And, you know, I want to make sure that they're pleased with the choice that they made. If not, they can walk out the door and go see somebody right down the street or go to Vein Clinics of America as it relates to veins. So, you know, if you don't think that you have to 
you know, convince patients and sell them on yourself and on the disease and how you're going to fix it, you really are, it's a bit short-sighted and, and, you know, it's different when the person comes in in a car accident to the hospital and you're embolizing a spleen. In that situation, there's a choice isn't really there to be made, but in these disease states where they can choose amongst the array of people in the city of different types of specialties, um, <clears throat> you know, you really do have to do a good job with that. And I think in, in vein disease, doing your own ultrasound really lends itself to that education as well as, you know, convincing the patient that, you know, you and that person are the right choice to work with each other to get this problem resolved. Definitely. I think that's a, a crucial thing for prospective interventional radiologists to know, like, like a lot of our listeners, for sure. But Dr. Shiloh, what, what role do interventional radiologists play in the diagnostic process for venous conditions that you treat? Well, uh, as we were just briefly discussing, clearly uh, in an office, when patients come in, the IR doc will be the one who should be assessing the patient, looking at their legs, determining uh, just, again, based on, I can now, based on the look of the legs, have an idea as to what vein is refluxing or, or the blood is moving in the wrong direction. And then I do confirm that with an ultrasound. Uh, so that, that's one aspect of it. Uh, within the hospital system, though, uh, the IR or radiologists are involved in other aspects of it. So, for example, back when I worked in a hospital and for many years, one of the ways that we tried to increase our cases that we're involved in, especially DVT, is that we would not only educate the emergency room, but educate our other radiology colleagues that when they read a uh, DVT study and they saw uh, a large, you know, DVT, a femoral iliac, iliofemoral DVT, that not only would they call the ER with the report, that they would call the IR doctor and give them the report as well. So that, you know, again, if you wanted to be proactive, you could then call the ER and say, hi, this Mrs. Smith has a fairly extensive left lower extremity DVT. I'm really worried that this is Mae Therner. Many times you'd hear them say, May, you know, May what? And, you know, they didn't know what it was because May Therner or iliac compression syndrome is also something that is very uh, poorly uh, taught and not discussed very frequently. So you could at least take a proactive step and explain that to them because many times or for years, what they would do is a patient would come over with a DVT, they'd come in the hospital, they get heparinized and then cumnonized and go home. Um, I know the attract study didn't exactly come out the way that we had hoped, but um, that doesn't mean that there aren't patients for whom uh, pharmacomechanical lysis isn't appropriate. And again, for years, when the patients had a DVT and they weren't getting better, the next step was to consult vascular surgery. And at least at my institutions, vascular surgery did not have too much to offer typically, and then it would end up in our hands, but would lead to several days worth of delay of hemming and hawing. So, you know, again, by educating the uh, ER doctors and other uh, staff who dealt with this type of issue, we were able to dramatically increase the number of patients with DVT that we dealt with, uh, including, you know, lysis patients, pharmacomechanical lysis, uh, iliac vein stenting, and so on. So, uh, like I said, in the hospital, the interventional radiologists uh, can certainly play a very important role in terms of uh, directing what patients should and shouldn't get treated for uh, deep vein thrombosis. And in an office setting, certainly the IR doctor can also be deeply involved in uh, the assessment of superficial vein disease. How exactly do you treat superficial venous disease via what methods? And what would be your threshold for performing an intervention in these patients? That question you could talk about for hours. Um, but 
you know, the, the mainstay of management of superficial vein disease is basically to shut down the vein that is refluxing. Okay. So uh, the pathophysiology of vein disease is such that it basically is blood going in the wrong direction. So when blood goes down to your feet in an artery, it's, it's moving rather rapidly because the heart is pumping it down there. And then it's got to make a big turn and come all the way back up to your heart to cycle again. But by that point, it's given up a lot of velocity. So the superficial venous system has valves inside of it that are supposed to open and shut immediately after opening to allow the blood to rise up sort of like an elevator going from the ground floor to the first floor, second floor, third floor, and so on. When the valves break or become incompetent or dysfunctional, the blood goes up and down the leg or in that vein. And eventually over many years of that happening, the pressure builds up in that vein to the point where it dilates and then subsequently begins to release the pressure and increase capacitance in the system by creating uh, new veins. And that's the you know varicose veins and uh, that you end up seeing. And then eventually, again, if it keeps going and going and going, you get edema and, and, and the uh, progression of diseases I described. So historically, in vein disease, they used to remove the vein. It was called a vein uh, stripping. And people uh, did not like that procedure. It was very painful, morbid. And, and I think that's where there was a lot of negative feedback about it. They'd go back to their doctor and say, wow, that was horrible. And now their doctor's like, well, I'm only really going to send the worst cases to a doctor to get that done. Like everything else, over the last 20 years, the procedures to treat vein disease have become minimally invasive and completely percutaneous. So the mainstay of treatment now, or has been, is basically you know, closure of those veins. And for years, that involved either uh, EVLT, which is endovenous laser therapy, so laser, or radiofrequency ablation, uh, RF. And those have been basically the mainstay or standard of care to treat the greater saphenous vein and the lesser saphenous vein. There are other devices and treatments that are out there. Uh, one that I've come to really like recently is Venusil. It's a vein glue. It allows us to go to the very low aspect of the ankle, almost to the foot. I've actually stuck a couple of people in the foot and worked, gone, done the entire GSV with, with glue, um, which is dianacrylate. Um, it's got a lot of advantages. You can go all the way down to the foot. Uh, you don't have to numb the entire leg with, with uh, you know, liquid or tumescent lidocaine. There's no burning. Uh, there's no ablation per se. So when you finish you basically cover up the incision with a Band-Aid and the person can go right back to normal activity. So it's a pretty amazing new advancement. There's a couple of negative attributes to it, um, maybe beyond the scope of this discussion at the moment, but uh, there are new things coming around the pike. Varathena is also a, a proprietary foam uh, that is good for treating larger tributaries uh, and accessory veins. And so it's good to know and have all these various tools in our disposal. So in my personal practice, I primarily use uh, radiofrequency um, and venous seal for the truncal veins, which is GSV and lesser SAF and sometimes accessory veins. For perforators, there's a perforating ablation device, which is essentially a hot needle. Uh, well, it's not hot when you put it in, but it's basically like a hot poker. So it's a, a needle you insert under ultrasound guidance directly into the perforating vein. And perforating vein is a uh, communicating vein that exists in all of us. It it communicates between the superficial venous system and the deep. So sort of like the rung of a ladder, uh, the blood flow is supposed to go from the skin in, but in people with longstanding vein disease, the valve in that perforator can break as well. And now every time their calf contracts, let's say when they're walking, running, whatever, it sends blood out to the skin. So those can be very tricky to treat. Um, but 
there is a device called the perforating ablation device that is, like I said, a needle. You put the needle in, surround it with numbing medication, and essentially spot weld the perforator shut as if you'd gone in there, found it surgically, and ligated it with a suture. And it's a pretty amazing procedure. But in my practice, we do all of those things. And, and uh, basically, it all depends on what disease state and degree the patient has and what veins are refluxing. And so when, after I see them and assess them, I make a treatment plan. So I say, okay, first we do the GSV, then we might have to do the lesser SAF, and then we might have to knock off a few tributaries with foam or varathena and, and go from there. So that's why it's very important to be directly involved in the uh, assessment and evaluation because you can then create an appropriate treatment plan. There is no one procedure that fixes this all. But many patients think there is. I wish there it was, um, but there is not at the moment. And so uh, really, uh, you know, you have to generate a treatment plan and then go with it. Got it. Okay. Very nice. Uh, we talked a little bit about ultrasound. What other, what other studies would you order before you would start something like radiofrequency ablation, sclerotherapy? You mentioned the vein glue as well. What other kind of things are involved in the process? Well, really, it's just the actually, believe it or not, it's the ultrasound, but it depends on the insurance company. And again, maybe this is not the kind of conversation we want to have, but the, a lot of times the insurance companies nowadays will determine or dictate what other things they want to have. So um, many patients who come in with vein disease need to be put in a, in a three-month trial of conservative management, which means giving them prescription strength compression stockings to wear uh, for three months and then having them return to reevaluate them. Uh, other things, obviously, many companies want us to take digital photographs. So I've become a photographer. You got to take pictures and send them in and, and document the size and location of the varicosities. But from a, from a medical imaging standpoint, the vast majority of patients who come in with superficial vein disease, really all they need to do is have an ultrasound to look at that system. Once in a while, we'll do a, a CT of the abdomen pelvis if I'm really concerned about iliac compression or some other abnormality. But the vast majority of patients, uh, you know, 95% or more can really get by just with an ultrasound. Um, and after they've <clears throat> cleared the, you know, other medical hurdles like, you know, failing conservative management, uh, then you're good to go. And you can, you don't even need to get really, you know, blood labs, you know, you're, you're ablating a vein, really not doing much to it, even if their INR or their, you know, their blood is thinned with Coumadin, still stick the vein and burn it. I mean, I, I don't even get labs on people for vein ablations. I mean, I haven't in five years, 10 years. Hmm. Okay. Got it. So ultrasound is a very valuable tool for this, this aspect of interventional AI. Oh yeah. 100%. Nice. So uh, what are the most challenging types of superficial uh, venous disease cases that you see? That's a great question. Um, I guess I would say that the most challenging are either active venous stasis ulcers uh, or, and they go hand in hand often, are patients who were treated by other people before I ever got my hands on them or were treated 30 years ago with a vein stripping. And what happens is in a vein stripping, um, the, the goal was always to basically remove the entire greater saphenous vein. So they would have you know, anywhere between like five and 10 incisions made along the inner part of their leg, and the surgeon would uh, remove the GSV. And the patients would all tell me, yeah, they, they removed the whole thing. I'm confident of it. But unfortunately, what happens is oftentimes they didn't. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to tell whether they did or didn't. Uh, they didn't have an ultrasound in their hand at the time. I would say that the ones that are the most difficult are patients who have had prior vein strippings because they would inevitably never have their entire GSV removed. And then 
the body would then develop a very bizarre pattern of disease. And, and those patients, the problem is, is that there is not one, you know, uh, single truncal vein or straight vein that you can treat. So it becomes a very, very difficult challenge to figure out which of these massive ropey veins and others are the ones that are the culprits of causing the problems. And those are really challenging to get to an endpoint. And in those patients, um, and along with a lot of other things that we do, it's about expectation management. I'm not going to take someone who's 65 or 70 and has a really difficult looking leg with varicoses everywhere and, hyper, and, and, and hyperpigmentation and maybe some ulcers and make them look quote unquote normal. But it, you'd be surprised to learn that the vast majority of patients are really just interested in their leg, feeling better, not hurting. The cosmetic aspect of it, as much as many of us will look at it and say, wow, that's kind of ugly, they're not concerned about that. They really just want to be better and feel better. So if you set the expectation properly with the patient that you're going to do everything you can to continue to work with them so that they're uh, pain-free and that their overall health and well-being is improved, that is a, a very um, you know, reachable goal and not one where you say, well, I'm going to make your leg look uh, like you were 21 because that's not going to be feasible. And, and then they're going to be disappointed and upset. So those are very difficult. Patients with venous stasis ulcers can be challenging too uh, because to get to stage six disease, you have had to have vein disease for a very long time and there are oftentimes numerous refluxing veins that need to be treated. And, and you know, it's a, just a very challenging situation. But at the same time, it can be very gratifying to take someone who's had an ulcer on their leg for six months and somehow no one else seems to be able to fix it and it's very painful and, and you know, dramatic and you can get it to heal. And, and to them, that's super heroic. It may not be like, you know, embolizing a spleen in the middle of the night, but to someone who's had six months of a hole or an ulceration in their leg that literally no one else can explain to them how or why it's happening and, and you can find a way to make it heal, uh, you know, it's pretty heroic to them. So I think those are the t patients that are very challenging, and, and, but at the same time can be very rewarding. On the topic of more advanced venous disease, are there any emergent situations clinically, and how would you approach that? The really the the ones that are emergent per se, at least in superficial vein disease. So if we're going to just keep it to that, uh, are patients who actually have you know uh, very scary, not not necessarily life threatening, but very very scary uh, bleeds. Because again, if you understand about the pathophysiology of the disease, because these superficial veins have a lot of extra pressure in them when they get cut, whether it's a woman shaving her leg in the shower or someone doing gardening outside and a thorn cuts them, they bleed like an artery is, is, has been punctured. And hmm. those patients oftentimes are not only shocked by that, they're, you know, they're extremely concerned. I've had many patients who've gone to the emergency room and they've tried their best to close these down uh, patients have showed me pictures of their bathroom. It looks like the movie Psycho. Uh, and these are from veins that have ruptured. So, you know, basically, when someone comes in and presents that way, then what I typically do is I just try to figure out what the source of that vein is. And even if I can't do the ideal treatment, like an ablation of something nearby for whatever reason, I'm almost always able to just take a little bit of foam sclerotherapy, which is taking a liquid uh, Sotradecol, which is a, a, a STS. We use it in other aspects of, of uh, IR and medicine. And when it's aerosolized, when you agitate it with room air, believe it or not, one cc of Sotradecol, 
and five cc's of room air, you create a foam and the foam looks like the, you know, old school shaving cream that you push down on the, on the top and it comes out as a, as a larger area with larger volume. And you can always do foam sclerotherapy. So you literally could stick the vein that bled or the one right next to it and inject it Mm -hmm. with foam. And what it'll do is it'll immediately thrombose all of those superficial veins in the area. And, you know, at least give the patient some peace of mind that they're not going to go lay in bed and accidentally scratch them, uh, you know, just rolling over or something and wake up in a pool of blood. And I've, I've heard that story not, you know, unfortunately not infrequently, and it can be very scary to people. So uh, it's a very simple fix. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing what's uh, ideal or best uh, or necessarily fixing the ultimate root cause of the problem, but at least it's a treatment that can be done quickly, safely, and effectively to control that particular situation. For sure, yeah. That sounds great. So you describe, you know, a lot of different uh, treatments, uh, a lot of different strategies to uh, tackle this particular disease. What's the typical treatment response you see for these patients? Uh, when you say these patients, are you referring to ones that are bleeding or just all vein patients in general? Your typical vein patients that you see in the clinic, are these procedures that are well tolerated and procedures where patients will come months and even years after with no further complaints or is the rate of recurrence kind of frequent? Again, it's a very good question. And uh, we, it again, depends on the degree of the disease, most certainly. And again, depends on the expectation. So someone who comes in with stage two disease, which is symptomatic varicose veins, uh, they will almost always have a fairly dramatic improvement if, in fact, their symptoms were referable to vein disease. Because we all know, especially with pain, it can overlap. And you take a 65-year-old patient who says, my leg burns on the outside, they could certainly have an L4, L5, or L5, L6, I'm sorry, L5S1 uh, disc bulge or disc herniation causing a very similar symptom. And in fact, many of them do. But if the person says, if it's a 45 year old teacher who has had three kids and has varicose veins and swelling and she has, or GSV is refluxing and her lesser saphitous vein is refluxing and feeding the varicosities of her leg. As soon as we close those, that GSV and lesser saph, their, uh, pain and swelling dramatically improves oftentimes immediately because once the vein is closed, the body has to reroute that blood into the deep venous system. So it's an immediate effect. less like embolizing an artery. As soon as you close that vein, it's closed, and the body's got to find a way to reroute that blood. So for people who are truly symptomatic, uh, the uh, closure rate with RF and also with venous seal approaches about 95% at five years, so the vein remains closed. And the patients almost always remain asymptomatic. Does that mean that all their veins, their superficial veins will disappear? No. Sometimes um, the superficial veins do improve significantly with just treating the truncal vein, like the GSV or the lesser saph, but occasionally they also need to have a secondary procedure like a foam sclerotherapy to close the the tributary or the branching vein off the truncal vein down so that they get uh, a complete improvement. And that's one of the things that I would sort of Uh, I'd like to preach to those people who are doing vein disease is please, please, please try to also treat the secondary veins. Uh, The treatments for GSV and lesser SAF have become so um, pretty much easy and cookbook-ish that anybody can do that. And we have a whole array of different physicians who are practicing in this field in vein disease that can do those procedures. But 
if you really want to be good at it, you have to go beyond simply treating the truncal veins and go into the secondary veins because if you don't treat those tributaries and other veins that are refluxing, those are the sites of recurrence and those are the patients that I end up seeing four or five years later after they were treated by someone else. And again, they have a very unusual pattern of disease. They've recurred and they become much more challenging to treat. So I think if you, if you follow through on a treatment plan and you, you go beyond just doing the basic truncal veins, you'll find that you'll have a very significant amount of patients who are going to be very satisfied and will not recur. Um, and at least I haven't seen much of that in my own practice, but uh, I think it's important to remind yourselves that it's not just one treatment. There's several others that need to be done in order to really complete the patient's treatment plan. I love hearing about these strategies to improve patient care and satisfaction too. I think that's, that's a really great discussion. Yeah. It's very important. I mean, uh, you, you'll find that patients can really tell the difference between someone who's passionate about ensuring that they will have the best possible outcome versus those who are uh, just practicing so that they can make a quick buck off of doing a vein ablation. And, and, uh, you know, and obviously that, that, is the same in many other things that we do. So it's very important. Patients can tell the difference between someone who's really concerned about their overall well-being and want what's best for them and will stay with them for as long as that takes, or those who are, you know, just going to do fly-by-night IR, which is come in, do a procedure. The patient's name is, you know, Mrs. GSV ablation, and then never want to see them again. And they really can tell. And, and I think if you want to be successful in the vein disease world or in any specific disease, you really uh, want to make sure that patients can see that your passion and what you uh, can bring to them. And, and they, they can tell, they can really tell. And I think it's a very important thing. That's very well said. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about the care of patients with venous disease or varicose veins? Well, I mean, I guess just to summarize, I, I would say that, you know, the mindset that it's a cosmetic problem uh, and is not a medical disease is really a falsehood. Uh, yes, there's a cosmetic element of it, and I know plenty of women, uh, trust me, I hear it every day about, you know, people seeing these spider veins, and, and they want them gone, and, and I treat those too. Cosmetic sclerotherapy is very rewarding for me, and, you know, I have my own Instagram account for sclerotherapy, and I really do enjoy it. That said, the real basis of, of vein disease that uh, pushed me to get into it is the medical management of superficial vein disease, <clears throat> and I would remind anyone who's in doing this work that it's so much more prevalent superficial vein disease than deep vein disease. And yet our field seems to focus in its entirety now on IVC filters, IVC filter removals, DVT management, PE management. And I've done all those things. I've put in filters, taken them out. I've done PE lysis and all these other cases, but in sheer numbers, the number of superficial vein patients out there who are suffering and are untreated far exceed deep vein disease. And you know, before we start to complain that some other doctors have taken away this field of medicine from us, we should make sure that we're in it and, and in it to win it. And that means really learning and understanding about the disease and the various uh, treatments that are out there. And it's also true that by managing superficial vein disease, you're going to see crossover with patients who have deep vein disease. And so my superficial vein practice has led me to treat many patients with iliac compression, uh, done plenty of patients with uh, popliteal venous entrapment and angioplasty and angioplasty webs in the superficial, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, femoral vein. 
so there's there's definitely a crossover and a, and a mix between superficial and deep vein disease. And I would hope that if for anyone who's interested in this field, uh, that you know, they take the time to learn about this disease. It's not, it, it, there's, it's very fascinating. There's very few people who are really deeply involved in this. And um, it does open doors to other elements of interventional radiology uh, and also PAD. I mean, I, the last thing I would say is, you know, for, for venous, for, I'm sorry, calf ulcerations, if you talk to any doctor uh, who does uh, wound care, you'll find that 50 to 60% of patients with, with uh, poorly healing uh, wounds in their calves and feet are actually venous stasis ulcers, not arterial disease. So again, there is also a um, crossover between vein disease and arterial disease. So if you're doing a good job, you're going to start seeing venous ulcers, you're going to see arterial ulcers, which can lead to PAD work, which I know a lot of IRs lament that they don't have the opportunity to do arterial work because of our vascular surgery and cardiology colleagues. But you know, again, you never know if you keep practicing and become expert in something like this, the patients that will present to you and the, the patient doesn't present with an answer on their forehead. Like I have a refluxing perforator under this venous stasis ulcer plus GSV disease. You have to solve that problem. And maybe they have that may also have arterial disease and you, you'll be doing, you'll be getting three or four cases out of it. So um, it really is important uh, if you're going to get involved to really truly practice in this field you know, with passion and, and a deeper level of understanding of the, the pathophysiology and the treatments. And hopefully there'll be more IRs in the future, uh, going back to at least uh, superficial vein disease, uh, so that we can keep this type of disease process within our field of practice. Awesome. So cool. All right. Well, Dr. Shiloh, um, we really enjoyed having this discussion with you. Um, before you go, though, um, one last question. If you were on an elevator with an aspiring interventional radiologist, and let's say, you know, they were going to go see their first case of a varicose vein ablation, um, what kind of insight would you share to that student before they were about to go see it? Well, uh, the elevator analogy is fantastic since I used it earlier today or in this conversation uh, as far as how the blood returns back. Um, I think what I would I would share with them is that, you know, the, in vein disease really nicely sums up some of the, the beauty and, the, and uh, the magic of what we're able to do in terms of treating patients in a way that is almost unimaginable uh, to them or probably to doctors 30 years ago. The fact that I can put a 75-year-old patient on the table, access their greater saphenous vein at their ankle, put a catheter up to their groin all under ultrasound and painlessly, deposit glue and then glue their vein shut and then actually see their veins <clears throat> dissipate and disappear while they're on the table because the glue is actually also traveling into some of the tributaries that feed the superficial varicosities. To be able to do that while the patient's awake and to talk to them, I think that it, it really nicely encompass, encompasses the, the beauty uh, and the elegance of what we do is that we're able to do some amazing things with, uh, you know, patients wide awake, uh, talking to them with local anesthesia only, and, 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 and basically perform a procedure that was once so morbid and so destructive by completely ripping and tearing this vein out is now done in 20 minutes uh, in an office painlessly with a Band-Aid on. And, you know, again, I didn't invent this procedure, and I'm – so it's not I'm not selling it. I'm just suggesting that it gives an insight into how how beautiful 
the things that we do are in this field and, and how almost magical they are. And that if you stay with it, you'll see that there are so many elegant solutions that people have come up with over the years for very challenging situations. And this one is, is also one that sums it up very nicely, how you took a, what was once again, a dreadful surgical procedure and turned it into a minor office-based procedure uh, that the person can return to their normal activity as they walk out the office. I mean, there's really nothing else that I think can really demonstrate how beautiful that is. Uh, you know, there are other fields and things in IR. I mean, I, you know, again, when you're burning a kidney tumor uh, and it used to be all done surgically and now you can have a patient come in, have a microwave ablation or a cryo and have a Band-Aid and walk out and their cancer's gone. I mean, yes, it's, it's just so beautiful and, and it's so elegant. I think, again, the vein type of procedures is, are very similar. These are things that were once done in a very barbaric surgical way. And now the treatments are so, so simplified and elegant. And, and I think that's what they should see is how amazing this field really is. And, and this is just one small procedure, but it, it sort of is a, uh, you know, similar to many others that we do. And, and it's a nice taste of, of all the other procedures that can be done. That's really awesome. I think that really encompasses uh, why we as students are really attracted to the field of interventional radiology. Yeah, I think once I got into it back in the day, I just never looked back. And uh, honestly, it, it's been a, the best decision I ever made uh, for me. I, I would encourage anyone who's interested in, in continuing on their field in IR that there's so many, you know, not only can you practice in, as an academic interventionist and even develop, you know, a, a smaller niche within that. There are docs who just do pediatric. There are docs who just do IO. And, and then there's generalists who do a bunch of different things. And there's doctors like in our group who practice and do a lot of PAD, which is a little bit foreign for others. So there are so many different practices. And, you know, I've been in many of them. I've trained in academics. I've done private practice. I've had my own vein office. Now I'm in an OBL. I mean, and so even my, in my own career, I've, I've seen five different types of practice patterns and they're all have their, you know, have their positives and negatives, but overall they're all amazing. No matter what, which way you choose to go, uh, you're, you know, there's always going to be learning. There's always going to be new procedures that are coming out, always ways to advance this field. And so I just think that um, it's an amazing field. It's only getting better and then and, and growing. And uh, hopefully we'll see a bunch of you guys uh, out there uh, as our partners sometime in the future. That's the hope for sure. I can definitely hear the passion in your voice. And I, I, we've got to thank you for this wonderful discussion on venous disease. And also, I think a lot of other aspects of interventional radiology, from training to different practice settings to kind of the day-to-day life. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time, guys. And that's it for this episode. Thank you again to Dr. Shiloh. Check out our show notes for links to his Twitter and Instagram. Please keep an eye out for upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing the interventional radiology interview trail, just in time for interview season, uterine fibroid treatment, and more. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time. Thank you.